welcome to Jmart's State of Health podcast. I'm your host, Jmart, and on this podcast, I want to share my experiences as a personal trainer and health coach, as well as my personal stories from self-experimentation about the various aspects of health, ranging from physical training and nutrition to other lifestyle choices. On this episode of the podcast, I'll be talking about what my training currently looks like and answer some questions I've received about training and nutrition. For the training update part of the podcast, I share some cool resources that I've been using for general stretching and middle split training. And I have a really useful handstand tip that's been helping me a lot to finally feel balance in my hands. For the questions part of the podcast, I elaborate on how to think about alternating high volume and high intensity training blocks for muscle building. I also talk about what to do if chin-ups are hurting your elbows. And finally, at the end, I go through a scientific journal article to answer the question of, is saturated fat bad for your heart? If that sounds interesting, then this episode is for you. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can get started with my free bodyweight training program, Body Basics, which requires no equipment by going to subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm, hit subscribe if you like the content, and hit the notification bell if you're feeling lucky. All right, here's the episode. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Jay Mart here with another episode of my podcast. Thank you for joining. In this episode, I'm going to take a slightly different format to the podcast and uh, start by talking a little bit about what my training's been like recently, give a little bit of a training update for the first part of, the, of this episode. And then for the second part, I want to just address a couple of questions in the last little while that I've received related to training, health, fitness, and um, and just kind of go deeper on those questions. At the very end, I have a journal article that I want to get into that will help provide some support for the claims that I will make. So stick around for that. So let's get started. So training update, what have I been up to recently? Uh, most of my training has been focused on three things. I've been doing a lot of flexibility work, uh, also doing uh, trying, trying to train handstands, trying to learn how to do a handstand, how to kick up and hold it. And then uh, the last one is uh, doing uh, side splits or middle splits, trying to work or slowly progress towards being able to do uh, not quite the Van Dam splits, but you know, open up the hips on either side and uh, be able to touch the touch down to the floor. Not pretty far away from that, but uh, working on it. And I guess I'll give a little bit of um, more detail on each one of those things. So in terms of flexibility training, I've just kind of been doing a lot more of um, uh, finding like, you know, finding fun routines to follow along on YouTube or wherever and just putting it up on the TV and, um, you know, taking my mind off of things. You know, I'm like most people, I don't often like to program exercises for myself. I'd rather just follow along something else somebody else has already thought of. And, um, you know, the, the, the key there is just making sure you follow someone good. <laughs> and so that's what I've been doing. I've been doing short 20, 30 minute following long routines, kind of targeting the whole body. Um, what I've been, if anyone has a question as to what I've exactly I've been following along, I'll share my screen real quick. And, um, show you that I've been following this page right here. The Bodyweight Warrior is a fairly decent sized uh, channel on YouTube. 
He's got a playlist called Follow Long Routines. There's a lot of different ones, as you can see. I've been following a bunch of them, you can see. Uh, I've watched a bunch of them. There's, they range all the, way from, all the way down from five minutes to, I think there's, there's an hour long one. Uh, full body ones, ones that are specific to different parts of the body or different types of uh, flexibility. There's one here you can see for swimmers, runners, all sorts of stuff. I think there's one for climbers. Been finding this really useful and helpful. And uh, it's been fun to just kind of, uh, you know, fo follow something uh, on a regular basis and uh, slowly improve, but not have to be the one necessarily engineering all that kind of uh, thinking about and the, the change that I want to see. Like, is, you know, somebody else has already created these routines, put some thought behind them. Um, and uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed just the following along and uh, seeing improvements in my own body with regards to flexibility. And it's great that it's not very long, you know, just uh, 20, 30 minutes. And I did try doing a one hour long one, one time as well and enjoyed it, but it was a little bit too long for me. The 20 minutes hits the spot. I don't think you really need to spend that much more time on flexibility unless you have like a very specific goal, which I guess for me, I do with regards to the splits training. So with that, I've been following in isometric uh, training progression, which I found out about from another YouTube channel. This one right here, Dan Van Zent. He's also on Instagram as Flexibility Research. Highly recommend his page. He's got a sweet little webinar where he gives a um, very thorough explanation of what an isometric split progression would be like. I've been following this and uh, definitely feeling the uh, <laughs> stretches in the adductors and the groin. Uh, it's definitely a tight part in the body and requires um, a lot of work and effort. And it's not just like, you know, stretching, it's also strengthening the adductors as well, right? It's the ability to have strong adductors in that lengthened position to be able to to be able to also uphold your body body weight right your the weight of your abdomen head all that that's being held up above the hips it's the strength in the adductors to be able to hold that weight up while lengthening and stretching it's a very hard skill and uh yeah i'm struggling with it <laughs> but uh it's a you know good challenge and a good reminder to just uh keep working keep going away keep chipping away little by little, enjoy the process, embrace the uh, little plateaus and try to figure out what's going on and how I can move past them. And then lastly, the, um, the handstand training. I've figured out with handstands that tuck handstand is my best friend. If someone doesn't know what a tuck handstand is, that's when you, uh, uh, the tuck position is when you like bend your knees and bring them to your chest. So both the hips and knees are bent. So if you imagine doing that upside down, uh, you just, like I said, bend the hips and knees and bring the knees to your close to your chest. It doesn't have to be completely right against your chest. That's the tuck position. And it kind of forces me to have as open of an upper back, thoracic spine and open shoulders as possible. So that way um, I can get full 180 degrees of uh, shoulder flexion. So the arm going overhead uh, and 
that's really the key to being able to find the balancing point for me. It just seems it really hard any other way to, to get to that, to get to a point where I can feel like I'm controlling the balance in my hands. The tuck position is a good one. If anyone's also working on handstands and uh, seems to have hit a wall, uh, which I <laughs> seem to have prior to kind of making this little discovery, uh, try to give it a shot. I've been doing tuck handstand holds or tuck slides where I just have my foot against the wall, feet against the wall while I'm upside down. And I just uh, slide the feet up and down as I tuck my knees towards my chest and then up and away from my body. Uh, try just trying to accumulate time in my hands in the tuck position with the shoulders really open while my legs kind of move up and down. And that pretty much summarizes my training and every once in a while I, I'll do like you know random pull-ups here and there just because uh, you know it's fun to do that for me anyway and um, just it's a good way to kind of it's called greasing the groove so you just do a difficult exercise at low repetitions every once in a while just to make sure you maintain that strength been doing that with pull-ups and also with another exercise called the sissy squats which is a squat variation particularly uh good for strengthening knees, the joints and uh, the, the knee joint and the connective tissue in the joint as well. And uh, if anyone doesn't know what that looks like, it's kind of like when you uh, do a squat, but you raise your heels and you push your knees way past your toes and uh, you uh, keep the hips extended. That way you have kind of like a straight line from the knee all the way up to the shoulder and you bring the knees forward past the toes and down towards the floor hopefully not smacking the knees hard down on, on the floor, but with control, you bring them down and stand back up. Pretty challenging. I've been mostly using kind of like a wall or another piece of furniture uh, to hold on to as a way of kind of taking out the balance component out of the equation and focusing on just uh, strengthening the muscle tissue, but also more importantly, more importantly, the connective tissue. Yeah, so there it is. That sums up my... Uh, Training update, uh, next thing I want to talk about. Okay, uh, some questions that I've gotten over the last little while. One of them is kind of uh, somebody wanted me to elaborate a little bit more on uh, high intensity and high volume training for muscle growth. This was from the first episode of the podcast where I was talking to my friend Alex about muscle building and how with regards to the training aspect of muscle building, one of the best approaches to stimulate um, muscle growth is to uh, go back and forth between high intensity and high volume. And so just to further elaborate what that means. So volume is really referring to the, you know, the number of reps and sets that you perform during the workout, whereas intensity more indicates how much weight is lifted in one particular set. So if you think of the relationship between these two things, the vol volume and intensity, they're inverse to one another, meaning that the more sets and reps you do, the lower the weight that you can lift in each uh, individual set and vice versa. You know, if you do uh, fewer reps and sets, then you can do, uh, you can lift heavier weights. And so, you know, there's no, I don't think there's, you know, people will maybe argue back and forth saying one's better than the other, but that's not really true. They all, they both have, you know, their 
pros and cons, their strength and strengths and weaknesses, and obviously the right approaches to go back and forth between them. And that way you'll reap the benefits of both and avoid the pitfalls. And ultimately what really matters for muscle growth is I think time under tension. And so you can, you can accumulate a lot of time under tension and time under tension just simply means like the time under which you're like holding the weight and performing the exercise. You can accumulate a lot of time under tension, both while doing high intensity and high volume uh, training. So, so let's go over a quick little example of what training protocol would look like if you kind of alternate back and forth between a high volume and high intensity training block. I always recommend you start with the high volume block first to build a base and then from that move on to the higher intensity. So if you're starting with high volume training, then you need to have a large number of sets and reps. So let's say you're looking at it from like upper body, lower body perspective, and you're in a high volume training block. Let's say you have 10 sets of different exercises that all target the legs, and you're gonna keep the reps high in the 12 to 15 range. And so that's as simple as that. It's as simple as doing a high number of sets and reps uh, with a high, uh, and because it's such a high number and you're gonna get tired easily, the, the amount of weight that you can lift per set is going to be low. And then about two to six weeks later, that's about the amount of time that I suggest you stick to one block for, because after that, then there's too much plateauing. So, you know, so things need to be varied. You can move on to the high intensity block. And now for this block, you reduce the number of sets significantly less. So let's say if you're doing 10 before, you can reduce it by half down to five, and then the number of reps per set is going to be significantly less as well. So you could say, for example, reduce it anywhere down to as low as three or five or even eight, right? Compared to 12, 10 to 12 or 12 to 15, that's quite a bit less. And then again, as you can imagine, because of the way fewer sets and reps you have to do in this high intensity training block, the amount of weight you can lift per set is going to be quite a bit higher. And that's why it's called a high intensity block. And again, after two to six weeks of that type of training, you can you know, flip back and forth. And it's as simple as that. You don't have to complicate it any further. Um, that's it. Yeah. Uh, there's many ways to do this, of course. Uh, and, you know, people will say that, um, you know, there's more effective ways of doing things, but, you know, you need to play around with the basic way of doing things first and see how well that works and then make alterations from there. Uh, I think that's all I have to say with regards to that question. Uh, another question I had was regarding elbow pain from doing pull-ups. How do you avoid, I guess the question is, elbow pain from doing pull-ups? And it's hard for me to kind of answer that question without, um, you know, seeing what exactly someone's doing as they're doing pull-ups and what the overall training program looks like, you know, it could just be a little bit doing too much, you know, in a, in a short period of time. So it's hard to give a kind of specific answer to that one. Uh, but going over some of the kind of major points regarding this, I guess some of the questions I would ask is, you know, trying to figure out what variation of, of uh, doing pull-ups is causing the most amount of pain. That's a good question to ask. And if there's one variation that you are able to find that's like that, then, you know, it's, uh, 
good to stop that for a little while and then use different variations and exercises that apply, you know, less load on the, you know, on the elbow. You could lower the frequency of your training and then slowly, you know, increase the load and frequency over time see to a point where you can, you know, not feel pain while you know, pushing yourself hard. One thing about uh, pull-ups, uh, I know in general, straight bar chin-ups, um, they, they fix the wrist in a particular way. And they also load the elbow quite a bit because of the fact that you use the bicep quite a bit more from doing a straight bar chin-up. So that's often the variation that's most troublesome for people. Uh, so I would say change up the grip to neutral that does the trick pretty well. Uh, neutral grip chin-ups or, or pull-ups, whatever you call them, are a good way to mitigate some of that with the elbow pain. And then also using gymnastic rings is going to be excellent as well because it allows for a degree of freedom to return the wrists as you're doing the pull-up, which uh, can help you find a kind of a, a way of pulling, a path or movement path to pull yourself up that is less painful than when you do it with a straight bar chin up, which fixes the hands in a particular way. It's a short answer to that question. I can't give any more detail than that. And then this is gonna be the big one, the last one. And this wasn't so much a question as uh, it was, I was talking to a friend and uh, this came up where we were talking about uh, nutrition and he said that saturated fat fats are bad he knows that saturated fats are bad and he's been eating a lot more polyunsaturated fatty acids to avoid cardiovascular disease risk or to have a lower cardiovascular disease risk to be more accurate and um, I completely disagree with this uh, statement and uh, I let my friend know hopefully not in too pushy of a way what my thoughts were on the subject and luckily he was actually very open-minded and asked me to send him some literature to go over and look into for himself because he's never actually you know looked into it for himself he's only heard what other people say so you know valuable lesson for everyone uh watching or listening to this is uh you know it's good to check things for yourself a lot of times and um you know, it's, of course, it, we don't always have the time. We don't always have the motivations, but uh, something regarding like what you're eating and your health is a big part of your life. So it's definitely good to check for yourself. So I'm going to share the article that I sent my friend to go over to help him get a better understanding of what is the impact on your health from consuming saturated, fatty acids, saturated fats. And I'll uh, share that with you as well here and let me know what you think. So let me scroll up to the top. Here is the article from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology that was published mid 2020. So it's a fairly recent article and the title is Saturated Fats and Health, a Reassessment and Proposal for Food-Based Recommendations. This is a state-of-the-art review by this journal. And uh, the author, Ronald Krauss, is a, you know, usually when you look at these articles, you want to look at the last name in the list of authors. That's usually the person who gives kind of the most credence to behind this article. And he's a pretty well-known guy. If you like just 
Google search his name, he has his own Wikipedia page. He's also got another page um, from the University of California, San Francisco. They give a little profile on him if you want to look into what work he's done. But most importantly, if you look at his publications, he's got a lot of publications. If you scroll down to the bottom, he's got over 450 publications. So this guy is probably pretty reputable. He's a medical doctor and he does a lot of research as well. Uh, probably safe to listen to the advice in this article. So let's go over what they cover. So let's see, the article starts, the authors of the article start by saying that since the 1980s, it has been recommended that saturated fatty acid intake be limited to less than 10% of total calories as a means of reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So since the 1980s, this is a long time, since over 30 years, they've been told to reduce saturated fatty acid, saturated fat intake, and not only to reduce it, but reduce it quite, quite a lot by less than 10%, less than 10% of total calories. And so what the authors want to, the question that the authors want to answer is what is the relationship between saturated fat consumption, both types and amounts, and the risk of cardiovascular disease in adults? And, you know, they looked through the evidence and uh, pre presented what their analysis is. So in the beginning, they just kind of give you a little summary. They looked at studies that all summed up together, cover 400,000 people, both in observational studies and randomized control trials. And what they found is that no evidence that reduction in saturated fat consumption may reduce cardiovascular disease incidence or mortality. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a surprising. <laughs> Why is that? And they, in fact, in addition to that, they find some reports where actually a significant, albeit a mild beneficial effect to increasing saturated fat consumption. So to them, they say the basis for consistently recommending a diet low in saturated fat is unclear. They're, they're questioning where, why is this, why are people uh, saying you should reduce saturated fat intake when, you know, there's no evidence that it reduces cardiovascular disease risk or mortality, and there might even be a beneficial effect. It's very, very unclear. And so let's go take a deeper look at the evidence. And before we do that, actually, let's just go over an important point that the authors make here that I think I'm gonna stress. And uh, this really is, I think, at the crux of the of this whole thing of nutritional science, like why there's so much unclear information. Uh, the authors say it's useful to distinguish between fat and fatty acids, okay? So saturated fats can be defined as foods, okay? So saturated fats are foods that are primarily lipids and solid at room temperature, okay? So that's important. Saturated fats are foods and they're solid at room temperature, or solid at room temperature, of course, in comparison to polyunsaturated fatty acids at room temperature. They're liquid, they're much more unstable, and this is important. So these fats, the, the authors go on to say, these fats are solid because they comprise primarily saturated fatty acids, in which the term saturated designates a specific chemical structural property of fatty acids, specifically a reduced ability to chemically react with uh, iodine gas or hydrogen gas. I'm not exactly sure why they quote iodine and hydrogen gas, um, but I would even say uh, it's just 
chemically react in general. Saturated fats generally are inert. They don't react. And in fact, in the body, it would be more relevant that they don't react with oxygen, oxygen gas. That's, what's, that's the, what the important thing is, is they don't get oxidized in the body. But that's what saturated fats are. They're foods made up of saturated fatty acids, which are less likely to chemically react with anything. And this is another point that, uh, another sentence from the uh, article that authors uh, give, which kind of goes in line with, I, with what I just said, foods from which saturated fats can be derived, such as full fat dairy, yogurt, cheese, are usually said to contain saturated fats, although in fact they contain saturated fatty acids. And saturated fatty acids are chemically defined structures. Okay, so it's not, they're not food, they're chemically defined structures, whereas saturated fats, those are the food. They're a complex chemical mixture of all the major saturated fatty acids in different proportions and along with many other fatty acids as well. So there's this whole food matrix, right, that composes the saturated fat. And when you say that saturated fat, like this is what's interesting or what's difficult about, about uh, nutrition science is that it's hard to separate the effects of food that like the uh, the effect a particular food will have on someone's health is it's hard to separate that into what the different components of that food are doing right and this is the same for for like if you think about meat right like people say oh that meat it's it's protein you're eating protein but well yes meat is full of protein but it's also it's a food matrix composed of a bunch of other things meat has a lot of saturated fat it's got a lot of protein it's got it's a little bit of carbohydrate as well, in fact, and it's all kind of mixed together in this food matrix. And therefore you can't really say that a particular effect a food has on someone's health is, is because of that one component of the food itself. Hopefully that was clear. Okay, moving on to what evidence is there on the health effects of saturated fat. So the authors start off by going over all of the observational data and I'll kind of uh, explain what that is, but let's just start with this. They say a, a few large and well-designed prospective cohort studies, which used validated questionnaires to assess diet and recorded endpoints in a systematic manner were initiated recently. They demonstrated that replacement of fat with carbohydrate was not associated with lower risk of coronary heart disease and may even be associated with increased total mortality. <laughs> All right. So what they're saying is if you reduce saturated fat foods, replace them, replace them with carbohydrate foods, you don't get any better coronary heart disease outcomes. And in fact, you see more, more death. <laughs> now, one thing we have to take in point, take, keep in mind, though, is that these are prospective cohort studies. So these are observational studies. And what they're simply doing is they're creating questionnaires and asking people, you know, what are you doing? What are you eating? How much are you eating? And people answer these questions. And then they track these people and their health outcomes over, you know, many years. And this is how nutritional science is done. Unfortunately, you can't do it any better than that because uh, it's, you know, it's really difficult to conduct uh, uh, studies where you actually, instead of just simply observing, you're, inter you're intervening, interventional studies, because it's hard to force people, first of all, to eat what you want them to eat, and then also to do it for a long period of time where you can actually observe an effect. It's, it's very costly financially and difficult to 
do it just logistically. Um, so we have to we have a lot of evidence from these observational studies, but you know, there's a large asterisk with these observational studies just because, you know, it's just a questionnaire. Like, how likely are you to like nail answering exactly accurately how much of each particular food you've been eating? I barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. Like, I'm not going to be able to fill out a questionnaire about what I've been eating, you know, every month or I don't even, I didn't look into how frequently these questionnaires were filled out, but there's just a lot of um, difficulty in, in uh, making sure that you're not, uh, you know, that your evidence is, uh, is accurate. It's really difficult to make sure your evidence is accurate. So while there's, you know, the results show that replacing fat with carbohydrate is not better and could actually be worse. This is still a observational study. So we can't put too much, you know, uh, too much belief in this, in this, in these results. And this is true for all the rest of these uh, uh, outcomes that I'm going to go over that they present in this first part of the paper where most of it is just observational studies. All right, so moving on, they say, furthermore, a number of systematic reviews of cohort studies, again, these observational studies have shown no significant association between saturated fat intake and coronary artery disease or mortality. And some even suggest a lower risk of stroke with higher consumption of fat saturated fats. Boom, another observational study showing a similar thing where fat, saturated fat intake does not make you have more issues with your heart health. And in fact, you have less stroke. So what's the problem? <laughs> they provide sources. I did not go into these sources. I did not look at them and validate everything. I don't have time to do that. I'm just trusting that the authors of this paper did, it, paper did a good job of representing, representing the information truthfully and honestly. And, uh, you know, and that's a limitation, right? Like, <laughs> You have at some point you have to trust somebody unless you you know keep diving deeper and deeper into the literature and finding everything out for yourself. And you know, unfortunately, no one's got the time to do that. Only a few people do. So you know, it depends on their um, reputation, right? So this person, Ronald Krauss, he seems like he's got quite a good reputation. So I'm going to trust the fact that what he says is true. Moving on, another 15 prospective cohorts worldwide with over 33,000 people demonstrated that biomarkers of very long chain saturated fatty acids were not associated with coronary heart disease. And if anything, levels in plasma or serum may be inversely associated with coronary heart disease. Okay, just another um, observational study, this time with people worldwide, not just in one particular part of the region with a similar outcome showing no association of coronary heart disease and saturated fatty acids. The next piece of evidence they pre present is another observational study of 135,000 people. So it's a large number of people, mostly without cardiovascular disease from 18 countries, five continents, low and middle income countries, increased consumption of all types of fat, saturated, mono and polysaturated, polyunsaturated as well, 
was associated with lower risk of death and had a neutral association with cardiovascular disease. By contrast, a diet high in carbohydrates was associated with a higher risk of death, but not with risk of cardiovascular disease. So this study also demonstrated that individuals in the quintile with the highest saturated fat intake had lower risk of stroke. So again, kind of similar points here, you know, higher fat intake does not increase risk of cardiovascular disease. In fact, this study showing that people who consumed the highest fat intake had a lower, lowest risk of stroke. Moving on, newly published study of nearly 200,000 participants from the UK Biobank who were followed up for up to 10.6 years. There's no evidence that saturated fat intake was associated with incident cardiovascular disease. In contrast, the substitution of polyunsaturated for saturated fat was associated with higher cardiovascular disease risk. Although there was also a positive relation of saturated fat intake with all-cause all mortality, this became significant only with intake well above average consumption. So another one with a large number of people, specifically from the UK, showing that increased saturated fat intake did not have a higher incident of cardiovascular disease. And that, uh, in fact, when you replace the polyunsaturated, which are thought to be the healthy fats for the saturated fats, which are thought to be unhealthy, that's when you, uh, that's when you have higher cardiovascular disease risk. Huh, interesting. And uh, they do say though that uh, with excessive amounts of saturated fat intake, they did have an association with all-cause mortality, only though when uh, this was well above the average consumption. Again, I did not look into the source to see what the average consumption was, but, um, but yeah, this is just an association as always. And association is not causation. And that's true for all of the evidence presented so far in the paper. And so the authors say for dietary carbohydrate, higher consumption, mainly from starchy carbohydrates and sugar was associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. Okay, so we've seen a couple of uh, different studies that are hinting at the fact that Saturated fats are safe, but it's actually the carbohydrates that could potentially be what's, uh, what's dangerous. But for some reason, the suggestion is to decrease saturated fat intake and nothing about decreasing carbohydrate intake. So the conclusion that uh, the authors of this paper come to at the very end of this uh, paragraph here, they say there is little need to further limit intake of total saturated fat for most populations. By contrast, restricting carbohydrate intake, particularly refined carbohydrates, may be more relevant today for decreasing the risk of mortality in some individuals, example, those with insulin resistance and type two diabetes. 100% agree with that statement at the end there. Um, and let's now move on to the evidence that there is for uh, through randomized control trials. And this is like the more so the gold standard of what you, can trust in terms of like the results that you see. Now, these are interventions, right? Before we just simply observing what people are doing and making associations with health outcomes. Now we're intervening and we're saying, no, do this instead of what you are normally going to do. And we'll see if there's a change in 
particular measure outcome that they're tracking in comparison to somebody else who is not doing that intervention, but is doing the regular thing that they would be normally doing. <laughs> Hopefully that was clear again. <laughs> so the authors say most randomized trials of nutrient intake and clinical events have been relatively small in size. And this is of course true across the board. When you do observational studies, you can follow large numbers of people, but when you intervene, it's difficult, like I said, logistically and financially to do, to do these intervention studies on large sample sizes. Authors go on to say these were also conducted some 40 to 50 years ago, and there hasn't been much kind of recent updates on these randomized controlled trials. And they also go on to say these trials have important methodological flaws. They go on to describe these further subsequently. I won't go into that, but uh, let's go over what the evidence shows. So the first uh, randomized controlled trial they quote is this one called Women's Health Initiative. And this is actually a pretty large trial. They have nearly 49,000 women, it says, which demonstrated that the risk of heart attack and stroke was unaffected after eight years on a low fat diet in which saturated fat provided 9.5% of total energy intake. All right, so 9.5% is is just at the cusp of that 10% limit that uh, is, is recommended, right? They say less than 10%, you should have saturated fat. So if you bump your amount to the max amount that is recommended, even after eight years, you're probably fine. The second piece of evidence they present, PREDIMED trial. This trial compared a standard low-fat diet with a Mediterranean diet supplemented with nuts or olives. And despite an increase in total fat intake by 4.5% of total energy, including slightly higher saturated fat consumption, major cardiovascular events and death were significantly reduced compared to the total, to, compared to, with the control group. So this isn't a great bit of evidence. So what this tells me with the two kind of pieces of evidence we have in front of us, there doesn't seem to be any studies done where they actually look at high amounts of saturated fat intake and and see if that has a particular outcome that's bad for your health. The first one was 9.5%. The second was you, you increase the total amount of fat and only a little bit in saturated fat. And again, no issues with cardiovascular events or death. And then the last piece of evidence they provide is they say the six most recent systematic reviews and meta-analyses of randomized trials many of which were small and conducted more than 40, 40 years ago, but still comprise the core current dietary recommendations. So reviews and analyses of like these small studies on which the current recommendations stand on, results showed, according to these reviews and analyses, results showed that replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat has no significant effect on coronary outcomes or on total mortality. All right, so I did not go into these, again, these sources to um, make sure that what they say here is in fact what I find in these studies. But if I trust the author, <laughs> then it seems very silly that these small studies from 40 years ago that people rely on to say that the current recommendations of lowering saturated fat, when we review and reanalyze these studies all taken together, we find that there's actually no benefit 
to replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated or healthy fat. Okay. And the second conclusion the authors come up with is they say that a large body of information that raises question regarding conventional beliefs about, about saturated fatty acids and clinical outcomes. So taken together, the evidence from both cohort observational studies and randomized trials does not support the assertion that further restriction of dietary fat will reduce clinical events. There you go. I can't put it any, any clearer than that. There's no point in reducing saturated fat when both observational and randomized controlled trials show that there's no benefit. So why do you must, you must be going crazy, like saying, well, if that's the case, like, why is everyone saying you should reduce saturated fat? Like, there's gotta be a reason. There's gotta be like, there's gotta be some piece of evidence that people can point to as to why that is. And there is actually, so this all comes from the fact that, um, people associate saturated fat intake with increasing LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol is low density lipoprotein cholesterol. Without getting too deep into the weeds of this, the authors go on to say the plasma LDL cholesterol concentration has traditionally been used to assess the risk of cardiovascular disease and to monitor the effects of lifestyle and pharmacological intervention. So what's that, what that saying is simply doctors will, you know, do a reading of your blood LDL cholesterol levels. And then based on that reading, if the number is high, they say, oops, you're at high risk of a cardiovascular disease. We need to apply some lifestyle changes or some pharmacological interventions. And most of the times it is pharmacological in interventions. Let's be honest. Uh, very few doctors are, um, advising lifestyle changes to, uh, to, to patients. Um, but so the authors go on to say that that LDL cholesterol reading in the blood is, is not a good way to judge risk of cardiovascular disease. They say, however, there are weaknesses in this argument. Although it is evident that LDL particle plays a causal role in development of cardiovascular disease, a diet induced reduction of LDL cholesterol cannot be inferred, inferred to result in cardiovascular disease benefit without having the means of a comprehensive assessment of other biologic effects that may accompany this reduction. So what that's what what's that saying is kind of what I was talking about before as about the difference in saturated fats and saturated fatty acids, right? Saturated fats are the food itself and saturated fatty acids are the chemical components that make up that food. And like simply saying that you know, the reducing LDL cholesterol from, uh, you know, uh, through diet, although that, you know, although we know that LDL plays a role in cardiovascular disease development, we can't know for sure that simply lowering LDL is going to have a better impact on our heart health because there could be other things happening that we're not aware of. So we have to have a comprehensive assessment. We need to look at the forest before the trees, right? Take a step back and assess the entire situation before we say, you know, LDL bad, therefore reduce LDL. That's not necessarily true. Like if you look at in, into LDL, it's actually, and cholesterol in general, they're actually really important for health because every cell in our body needs cholesterol for proper function. Let's not go too deep into that, but, uh, 
here's some examples that kind of disprove this idea that high LDL is bad for health. They give examples notable that postmenopausal estrogen uh, plus progestin therapy and treatment with several, several protein inhibitors result in no cardiovascular disease benefit despite substantial LDL cholesterol lowering. So they have a drug that they give people that lowers LDL cholesterol, pharmacological intervention that we talked about that doctors are so keen on, yet there's no benefit for your heart health. Then there's another example of Mediterranean style dietary interventions that actually are known to reduce cardiovascular disease risk, but they don't reduce LDL cholesterol. Hmm, interesting. Further invalidating this idea that LDL cholesterol uh, increased through saturated fat is bad for your heart. And then last example they give here, another drug example, inhibition of the sodium glucose transporters reduces cardiovascular disease events despite, despite an increase in LDL cholesterol levels. So there you go. There's another one example uh, with drugs, you lower the LDL, no, no change in, in, in your heart health, cardiovascular disease risk. Another one with drugs, you increase the LDL. Again, in this, this time, you actually reduce cardiovascular disease events. So, so what's going on here, right? And uh, the authors go on to give a second reason why the reduction in LDL cholesterol cannot yield a reduction in cardiovascular disease through the observation that lowering LDL cholesterol concentration primarily reflects a reduction in large level in levels of large LDL particle subspecies. So again, this LDL reading in the blood that doctors look into, it's too blunt of an instrument because, and this is getting into the weeds, it doesn't tell you how many large LDL particles there are, how many small LDL particles there are, because what the authors say here is that the large LDL particles are more cholesterol enriched, but have a weaker association with cardiovascular disease risk than the smaller LDL particles which are not reduced by saturated fat restriction in the majority of individuals. So you're reducing saturated fat intake and you're not actually reducing the LDL that's associated with cardiovascular disease risk. So what's the point? There is no point, that's the answer. <laughs> Moving on further, the authors say decreasing saturated fat intake also lowers the levels of high density lipoprotein cholesterol. So that's the HDL cholesterol, always everyone people say that's the that's the good cholesterol, right? Right, And so what this does is this, this has no effect on the ratio of total HDL cholesterol, of, of total to HDL cholesterol, sorry. And that's another robust marker of cardiovascular disease. So some doctors have, uh, you know, realized that LDL is not a great marker of cardiovascular disease risk. So they use the ratio of total cholesterol to HDL as a better marker of uh, of cardiovascular disease risk. And when you reduce saturated fat intake, you're not only reducing total cholesterol, you're also reducing HDL. So that ratio stays the same. So there's no benefit again. And so the doctors say, or the authors of the paper say, potential benefit of dietary restriction of saturated fat could be substantially overestimated by the reliance on the change in LDL cholesterol levels alone. Exactly. You can't just rely on this simple LDL cholesterol level to say, oh, you're at high risk or you're at low risk, low risk. You need to dive deeper. And that's what that's the conclusion the, the authors have as well. They say dietary effects on cardiovascular disease may not be reliably reflected by changes in LDL cholesterol levels. And therefore, it is imperative 
to develop and implement more valid surrogate markers of assessing cardiovascular disease risk and monitoring diet-induced effects in research and clinical practice. Couldn't agree more. We need better ways of assessing this risk. Simple LDL blood levels are not doing it. And in fact, they're steering people away from being healthy. That's my opinion. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll share from this article is just this part right here where they give a little bit of a um, historical perspective, you could say. They talk about saturated fat from meat and how meat has likely been a major contributor to human diet. You know, that's how humans evolved is through eating meat. And human diets have also included fruit oils where available, such as olive, avocado, and palm. All of these are low in polyunsaturated fat, right? The good fat, they're low in that. But, and, and then the palm with the latter uh, being also high in saturated fat. Palm oil is very high in saturated fat. And then coconut fat would have been the only abundant lipid-rich seed, and that too is highly saturated, right? So all these foods are part of the human diet that are low in polyunsaturated fat and high in saturated fat. And this is how humans evolved eating those things. And then they go on to say seed oil consumption, which now dominates food supply. And seed oils are talking about um, soybean oil, canola, canola oil, corn oil, um, sunflower and safflower oil. Those are the industrial seed oils that it's talking about that dominate the food supply. Would have been negligible back, back then and until the advent of industrial, in, industrialized fat extraction, extraction in recent centuries. So yeah. These historical facts demonstrate that saturated fats were an, an abundant and key part of ancient human diet. So end it, I'll end it there in terms of uh, going over that, uh, that article, that review article. It's uh, pretty interesting. I'll link it in the description. Definitely check it out for yourself and see what you think. There's more to cover from that article. If you'd like me to cover a little bit more points from it, I'd be happy to do so. Please leave a comment, let me know. And uh, that's it. I'll end the uh, podcast on that note. Thanks everyone for listening and I'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for staying with me till the end there. I hope you found what you heard useful and at least somewhat entertaining. If you have any questions related to health training and nutrition that you'd like me to answer, you can either leave a comment or email me at newsletter at jmarkfit.com. That's newsletter at jmarkfit.com. Also, please let me know if you like this new format for the podcast. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmarkfit on Instagram and jmarkmoves on Facebook, or get my free bodyweight training program at subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Jmark out.